0: This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links, and for being patrons at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Welcome to The Tome, a DD and d news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner.
1: And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this surprise round, we'll be taking all the crazy D&D ideas, tossing them into this big pot, stirring them around, and seeing what we get as we discuss our first impressions of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything.
0: And our illustrious guests for this surprise round episode are the Tome Show's official historian, writer for Tribality, and addition warrior, Brandis Stoddard. Say hello. Hello, Travelers. Um, also, the Tome Show's general manager, because I've just tonight decided that calling him a senior editor is no longer doing justice to all the work that he does, <laughs> writer at RPG Musings, and the other edition warrior, Sam Dillon. Hello. Uh, and lastly, the brains of the operation, El Warius himself. He makes D&D videos and streams of actual play. I thought for a while that I wasn't smart enough to watch the videos. Uh, I really tried... But it turns out they're all in Spanish, a language I don't know, so I guess I was right the first time. I'm not smart enough to watch his videos, Uh, so welcome for the first time, uh, Mario Ortegaon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It's good to have you.
1: Definitely. And in this episode, we'll be discussing Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, a book of D&D, miscellany, full of class options, spells, magic items, puzzles, and so, so much more. Uh, in Surprise Round episodes, we get our first impressions of a book out very quickly after a book is released with the understanding we haven't done a deep reading uh, and we definitely haven't played it. And then if needed, we'll revisit the book later after it's been out for a while and have a chance to dig in deeper.
0: So before we dig into it, though, I want to remind folks that if you want to support the show, you can come and be a patron at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. I know things are tough for a lot of people right now, so if you aren't in a position to help us out, please don't. But if you are, uh, I can honestly say uh, that I've never wanted to do anything to make money on the show. Uh, There's no profit in this. I have a day job I'm very happy with. uh, But the coffers are empty right now, and I like for the show to sort of pay for its own bills. So if anybody uh, wants to support us in that way, I am eternally grateful for that generosity. Now – on to uh, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, which I almost misspoke because I copied the old script from the last surprise round. So I almost called it Icewind Dale, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, and that would not have made sense. Oh, <laughs> I could make
2: that make sense.
0: <laughs> I was
1: going to edit it, but I thought you were making a, co- a commentary. <laughs>
0: hey, you
3: should make like, a mashup uh, episode of two books and just like make something up.
1: <laughs>
0: well, it, I mean, it's it's not too – it wouldn't be too tough to mash up this book and that book because one of them is an adventure and the other one is just a list of, of options. So you can yeah. certainly just use those options in that adventure, right?
4: The canon around Tasha would make that a really interesting like random toss-in <clears throat> for Icewind right. Dale. And, <laughs> and then Tasha shows up. This is fine. <laughs>
0: You don't need Tasha to show up. It's not like her stats are in here. You just run into the the Demonomicon or or what have you, right? (laughs) Even better. Yeah. (laughs) So let's let's start off. We've kind of alluded to it, um, but let's start off. uh, Who would like to tell us a little bit about what is this book, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything?
4: Uh, I mean it's a a, a primarily player-facing book of options um, for – It's first two chapters, and then, you know, there's a conversation to be had about whether magic items are player-facing content or DM-facing content. And then finally, chapter four is DM-facing content. Um, but it is, it's a toolbox book. Um, it's a, it's a splat book. It's, um, you know, sort of got some DMG2, um, parts going on in the Dungeon Master's tools, just like Xanathar's did. You know What they're teaching us is that a book that ends in of everything means well, we don't want to do Player's Handbook 2 and we don't want to do Dungeon Master's Guide 2 anymore. We think that's bad. So instead we're going to do this.
0: Yeah, it, it, it almost feels even more miscellaneous than um, Xanathar's did to me. Um, and maybe that's I don't know. Nostalgia? Is that the right (laughs) impulse? I don't know. Um,
4: Well, when Xenathars came out, we had no basis for comparison, you know?
0: I suppose. Um, but it, it feels to me like the what this is trying to do is it reaches further and wider than Xanathar's did. It, it's bringing in more. It almost feels like, uh, at least from my memories of it based off of your discussions of it on Edition Wars, it feels like the fifth edition answer to the old Unearthed Arcana books.
4: Uh, I mean, literally true
0: enough, sure. I mean you right <laughs> because it feels like this. they're like here's a bunch of options we're not sure I mean we've tested them we know at least they're more solid than the old original Unearthed Arcana right because they've tested mm. them out they they know they're 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 solid mechanically but it feels like just a lot of like we're not sure we want these things in the game or not we're not sure you want these things in the game or not but here's a whole bunch of different options and we've categorized them in four different ways
4: hey I've promised Sam that Edition Wars can do Unearthed uh, Arcana if I'm allowed to just scream at the mic for two solid hours there you go. <laughs> uh,
3: well, uh, on, our, on our first look, we were saying, um, you know, I, I have a, a community where we game a lot and then also play RPG. So we were discussing it, that this feels kind of like an expansion, whereas Sanathar's felt kind of like a DLC, if that makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, this feels to me like it's kind of like a refresher on the game in a lot of ways. Mostly when dealing with uh, a lot of the uh, freedom when it comes to origin stuff or the character, I mean it touches on a lot of like basic game stuff that many people i think thought um, wouldn't be touched in in you know for the lifetime of fifth edition and I mean that's really interesting it it like it touches and modifies a few of the base um, features of classes that we've known for such a long time so.
0: Yeah, I think if you if you incorporated all of the options that are presented here, it would be a complete refresh of the game or an expansion, I think like you're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know that that I would go that route of necessarily in doing everything, right? <laughs> and just making right. everything common or core anyway.
4: I I definitely wouldn't skip the fighter section and the ranger section. Everything else who knows, you know, case by case, but uh, the fighter options and the ranger options are my must-haves.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, and those are fine, although I do have a player in my game, and I, I would be doing him a disservice to not point it out, um, that just absolutely hates the ranger attempts to fix the ranger that are that are represented in this book, fix the ranger that are represented in this book. He just uh, abhors them. Uh, I didn't dig into why. I just responded with, well, it's a good thing there are options and you don't have to worry about them, right? <laughs> so there you go. Um, but, so I, I know not everybody's mileage is the same on these things. Um, but so far as I'm concerned, like the things that are that they spend the most amount of time on in the book, um, spells, magic items, new class options, um, that seems to cover most of what's in here. And in that regard, like, I don't think it breaks any game or, or significantly changes the game of D&D to throw all of those things in. Um, I think it's when you start getting to some of the, the shorter little one or two page snippets like um, customizing origins or changing your subclass, which is uh, even shorter. Uh, you know, It's stuff like that that um, starts to have a more dramatic impact on on how the game plays, I think.
2: I I'm not sure I agree with the idea that Xanathar's and Tasha's are all that different. I mean, Xanathar, I'm sitting here looking at the table of contents. It's got character options for, you know, a bunch of classes. Mm-hmm. Tasha's has character options for a bunch of classes. It's got a section called Dungeon Masters Tools, which talks about, you know, in some cases, how to adjudicate things, it, it it expands on the tool rules and how to use tools and proficiencies mm. together. And then it talks about traps. Well, Tasha's has you know different ideas about you know how to use magic and 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 how to have group patrons. And it talks about puzzles, right? Um, you no, know, those, what I'm saying those like,
0: things like, map. pretty close. I think. I think you're right. Yeah, there.
2: they map pretty close. I, I I just I I think this is just another expansion of the Mm -hmm. book uh, of the game i don't i think that everything in xanathar's is optional everything in tasha's is optional you know and and, and when i say optional what i mean is you don't need either one of these books to run the game
0: no the thing where where i feel like tasha's is is reaching into different areas is on those little snippets Um, i don't remember maybe i'm not remembering correctly but i don't remember xanathar's having those little things like completely reimagining how Origins, how Race is done in the game. Um,
4: well, no, but the game wasn't under a, a steady stream of internet criticism at the time. Like They're, they're responding to the fan base here, Like pl- plain and simple.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Right? And it, maybe it isn't the deep overhaul of everything about concept of character origin that it could be but they need something that they can do in a single book and it not be the whole book. Right? Um, Mm -hmm. Like, this book is very much a response to everything that's happened since Anathars came out. Um, It's not designed Mm -hmm. in a vacuum.
0: Nope, I agree with all of
4: that. Yeah, not only that, I mean, I...
3: um... Um, you know, that definitely has a, a big impact in, um, you know, the way that creating characters um, works. But, I'm um, like, just going into base class features and then, like, I, either adding something or changing the way something works. I think that is the way that, I mean, that is the thing that, to me, feels like, okay, oh. we are sort of, like, rehauling, like, the, the core of the game. I mean... You know, like you said, if you choose to apply it, right? But it, I mean, to me, it felt those kinds of things previously felt like untouchable because they were the base of the game, right? It was the, the sort of thing that they would previously do on like a 0.5 version. Mm-hmm. If you go back to uh, the, the third edition days. Um, so, th- I mean, that's, that's what's interesting to me that they're basically just like going all the way to the roots and then like moving stuff around.
0: That is a good point because Xanathar's gave us a lot of new like subclasses, a lot of new builds for different classes, um, whereas this book does that. But then also, I think it does what? like Usually two-ish? Yeah, two-ish yep. new builds uh, per class, plus the artificer class with one, two, three, four, four different artificer subclasses. But then it also goes through all of the core classes and gives new options on class features. And in some cases, it feels like, you know, some of them are written in such a way that it replaces existing Player's Handbook class features. You can choose to replace this one with that one. Some of them, it seems like it just sort of lays on top. uh, And it just adds new features to the class without, without taking anything away.
2: You know, all of these things speak to the robustness of the Player's Handbook and the way that the game is structured, because These small changes are very easy to implement but could lead to very large changes later on and very large changes in how a person conceives of their character. And also just provides a lot more options but still keeping that very sort of baseline simplistic way – maybe simplistic is the wrong word – simple way to – create a character it uses the same language that we always have used for fifth edition it uses the same basic types of structures that we always use but it expands those options a great deal and it does it without breaking the game and i think that's that's why this feels different from xanathar's xanathar's didn't change anything it just added some things whereas this book feels like it changes some things or at least changes the way that we can approach it, but within still that same 5th edition framework. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. No, I think, I think uh, that's a good point.
0: There
4: are also things here that are functional errata for uh, the content of the past few years, right? And 5th like, edition came out in 2014. It's not 2014 anymore. Um, by this point in 3rd ed... Um, it was 2006, and third ed looked real long in the tooth within its 3.5 edition. Mm-hmm. Right, we were we were already in the late design cycle of 3.5. Um, I suppose you can ask yourself if you think we're in the late design cycle of fifth ed. But my answer is no. Right, uh, there's there's a level of like, how much are they having to reach for weird ideas just to have something to say? That, you know, they have not yet begun to weird. There's a lot more weird before I. I feel like we're getting to the the true late design cycle. Yeah. This although, is this is no tome of nine swords.
0: Well, and tome of nine swords was clearly not late design cycle. It was them testing out fourth edition, but. That's a whole other that conversation. That
4: design cycle. I suppose. I suppose. Yes. I
0: suppose, yes. <laughs> um, but but it's not them getting just. We we need to come be creative in order to justify coming up with new stuff in order to sell more books, which is what I feel like you start to see with the, the when that's when the the flags are being raised that okay something new should be coming along soon.
4: Um, the Amazon well, pre well, suggest they're not you know having to work real hard to get those sales.
2: Right. Also, don't forget that the design cycle for fifth edition is very different from third and fourth. You know, yeah. I mean, in fifth edition, we get a couple of hardbacks a year, maybe three, depending on what kind of deals they're making with third, third parties or, or other media properties. And in, you know, third and fourth edition, we were getting at least one hardback, usually two a month. So, right. you know, there was a, a lot of, a different sort of way of thinking about new material coming into the game and it was a lot more um so more so much more frequent that you know things could be broken and you just shrug and you know move on to the next thing because you know there's another two hardback books coming out in two weeks you know um that's very different from fifth edition fifth edition has always had you know taken the slow road to various um to the chagrin of various different people who want more. But I think the measured approach has served them well. So, um,
4: you know. they're, they're still pulling in ridiculously high sales per book. So,
0: well, I think that's yeah. the idea. It's a very different business model. And now we're getting into the weeds of things that aren't necessarily sure. this book. But, <laughs> uh, you know, the third edition model was produce a lot of content, the hardcore fans are going to buy it all, and the more content we produce, the more money they'll spend, and fifth edition is more, let's take our time and produce less content really well and grow the fan base, uh, so more people buy the books.
4: Right, and and 4e was in no way a deviation from the the third ed content model. Right, Um, right. They released their half edition even faster, Mm because it was the um, essentials.
0: Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. So speaking of so speaking of, you know, release fewer products but do them better. Let's talk about whether Tasha's mm-hmm. is better and whether it improves the game. Yeah. So, that's why so I'm the general manager because I can, that like, is, that so. is.
0: <laughs> You you segued us right into that next question, which is uh, yeah, what are the things that we that that raise our interest in this game? And after that, we'll talk about what things maybe we're skeptical about. So you so you know, that's coming, but what, what raises our interest? What, what are you particularly, um, what, what made you go, Ooh, in this, in this book?
4: So I've been following the UA really, really closely in tribality. Uh, this book does not have a lot of surprises for me as a result, other than the puzzles. So let someone else speak is what I'm going to do.
0: Okay.
3: Um, well, just in general, I think going back to the origin a uh, part of the character. Uh, just, I think it's going to, um, just in my own mind that I have been playing this game for so long, having the option to have, like, uh, a dwarf or a half-orc character and have them be, like, a pretty good wizard uh, just without sacrificing anything. Because right now, just like the book outright tells you, that if you choose to apply this rule... You basically just have to speak to your DM and just like move the ability score increases around so that that sort of thing I mean it, it just it feels really good <laughs> like the possibility it opens up a lot of possibilities mm-hmm.
0: it kind of that, that, that section uh, in my experience the the internet because uh, the internet is a collective uh, a universal collective where everybody 's the same the internet um, has responded to this section that takes up like a whole page and a half of the book it's it's actually a really small section that that customizing origin section um what it really does in my mind is it gives players official permission to do the thing that i always wanted to do in homebrewing stuff anyway right um there were many times that i was playing a game uh and or i was running a game and a player is like, hey, I want to do a thing, but I want it to be a little different than the norm, and we'd have to have this whole conversation about whether this is an appropriate thing to homebrew and, and how to do so in a way that's balanced and make sure it's focused on the narrative and not just, uh, you know, mid-maxing and whatever. Uh, and And that little page and a half feels like it gives me permission to do that, to customize that in the way that – and gives me guidance on how to – um, in the way that we've all that I've been trying to do since 2nd edition.
4: Yeah. It's showing the wireframes of race building a little bit more than we've otherwise had.
3: Yeah, and, and uh, one of the things that I mean, it basically boils down to talk to your DM, and it sounds like like, yeah, I mean, duh, right? That, that's, that's the thing we've been doing for so long.
0: But it but also like, gives a little more guidance than that. It tells you yeah, exactly yeah, what, what yeah. parts to customize and which ones not to, so.
3: Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, Super oversimplifying it, but like, uh, just it's it's the kind of thing that like 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 you said, like we've over already been doing for so long. When we have a new player and they're like really eager to do something new, and it's like um you don't want to make maybe want to work with them. I mean, you do maybe want to work with them. I mean, this basically gives you the, the the guidelines of what you can do and ideas on how to do it.
0: And it's fairly straightforward and and, and a lot simpler than I think it was in people's heads when they were imagining what the section was. I mean the fact that you can yep. do – that that you can take something that is a page and a half out of a, what, hun- 190-something page book um, and that that's the thing that seems to suck 20 percent of the air out of the room when people are talking about it in the previews, <laughs> right? So, <Yeah. laughs> Anything else raise our interest?
2: Um, I like the group patrons. I like the way that. Uh, I mean, we could talk about it when we get there better, but I that does. Um, oh,
0: there's no getting speak, there. we do we're, we'll talk thematically. So just
2: yeah. Okay, Please so I like the group patrons. I feel like there's a couple of holes in them, but I I do like them. So that piques my interest. Um, along with the you know the sidekicks. We already knew about sidekicks because of the essentials box, but I right. do like that it's in a uh, an actual hardcover book now. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, uh, group patrons are here sort of genericized from Eberron. And, you know, when you say, oh, we're going to sort of take group patrons and make that generic, that sounds like I'm going to like it less. But I actually had the opposite reaction um, because Mm -hmm. by not pinning it down to Eberron, it made it a little bit easier to, like, see how this was... A, a formula for so many stories in supporting fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sort of everything from, okay, it's Glenn Cook's The Black Company as mm-hmm. a military outfit, right? Good. To, um, I don't know, Carnival as, uh, spoilers, I guess, the show's been done for a long time, Ancient Being um, as the group patron,
2: mm-hmm.
4: right? Um, like, I, I find that really energizing to read.
2: Yeah, I the thing the thing for me where I feel like there's a whole. What I'm really surprised is they did not give an example of using a faction as a group patron or right. faction contacts. Well, like, I think you I, could
0: uh, argue they kind of did because the different factions fit into these other ones, kind of yeah, there's, right. There's, well, and
2: that's that's where I was going was, but you you could also you know you know the Lord's Alliance probably there's going to be an aristocrat in there, right? Um, right. You know things like that, but I really wish they would have given an an actual example. Sure. Yeah, so, I mean,
0: they've been focused on these factions since the launch I mean, of the core books. Well, so. sort
2: of, but they kind of let it fall off the wagon. Well, right? that's what I'm saying.
0: They, they could have brought focus back to it here. Sure. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, C- Criminal
4: Syndicate, uh, the Zentireen were the first two uh, on the list, just sort of rolled yeah. together fine.
2: Yeah, Good. yeah, sure. Um, well,
4: while also being a military outfit, so you can kind of... Right interpret them through whatever lens you want. Um, and th- those were the things that sort of struck me, right? Um, a lot of the things in fiction are going to feel like a multi-class of these.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
4: right. And so it's just going to be a matter of picking your lens.
0: And I can tell you that like a lot of the options here are – like new class options are going to be available in my games the spells the magic items those are all these are all things that are going to be uh, you know in my game but they're not going to change the way I run my game they're not going to change my campaign um, but i but I, I definitely plan on using group patrons and and i think the session 0 section gives me permission in a group that wants to stick to the books uh, permission to do a session zero uh, in a way that I want to, that will, I think, impact my my next campaign. So.
2: Let me tell you why I like the group patrons so much. Because the group patrons, that's just a fancy name for a group background. Because when you look at the features that are listed in this section... These are the same kinds of features, these these benefits that come with this group patron are the same kinds of benefits and features that you get with a person's regular background. For example, the background of the Acolyte and the PHB says something along the lines of, you know, if you go to a town and it has a temple of your deity, you can always get healing at that temple or get whatever, have free room, board, all that stuff. And that's for one PC. These group patrons apply to the whole group. And so it's a nice way to provide a story-based, because a lot of the of the benefits are not mechanical benefits, strictly speaking. You know, it's not, oh, you get a plus one when you attempt this thing. It's not like a feat. It's actually a, you know, here, because you work for this aristocrat, you have papers that document you work for that aristocrat. And when you're in any lands that are governed by that, kingdom or whatever you have a certain amount of authority Mm -hmm. right and that's not something that is mechanical that's something the dm can use to role play that's the part i like about it Right? And the characters, I mean, the, the players can use it to roleplay too, but specifically right. the DM can lean on those types of things.
0: And and, and Brandis mentioned that this kind of is a genericized version of what we saw in Eberron. And I would argue that we've even seen similar sort of things building to this in Theros and Dragon Heist. We've seen this concept even going back into factions. If we want to go all the way back, we can draw, we can connect those dots, um, which is why I'm a little bit surprised because they've, there's also been dots being connected in this direction towards like building in group or personal like secrets right between like descent into avernus and rhyme of the frost maiden. And, and they've been doing, they've been playing with this idea of building in secrets, player secrets, group secrets, these kinds of things. Um, so I guess now that we're talking, I didn't think about it before, but now that we're talking about it, uh, in the same way, I would kind of, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't throw a little generic size. Here's how to build in these kind of, kind of things on your own campaigns for secrets. Uh,
4: yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I, I do think that sort of we're moving toward if you want to play with the options on, like session zero is not optional. You, you need that just well, as you're, you're cordoned off time to deliver the explanation of what you're even doing. And like, uh, spark the conversation that needs to happen.
0: I mean, I think you can have that conversation that. without having an official session zero, but I want to try having an official session zero. It's like true. usually, usually I have those conversations between sessions on Discord through email, whatever, and and my players are all eager and they want to go build characters, so that I can't make them stop until, and wait till session zero to do so. Yeah, yeah, I mean that
4: raises the question to me that I know zero things about what like tabletop gaming culture is like in Mexico. Right, uh, Mario, do you do you guys tend to use session zeros and that kind of? Uh, like not exactly new gaming technology.
3: Uh, well, it depends. I mean, normally when we um, so gaming here is really I don't know if the word sparse is right, okay. but like you basically have to really look for it. You know, it's it's not uh, I, it's not the kind of thing that you would just like um, that just sort of crosses your way. You you pretty much have to. Go out of your way to look for places and either go to conventions or go to stores, very specific stores that I'm not even sure if they're actually open still after the pandemic. I actually haven't checked on them. But um, so that's the kind of thing that it's like the groups are so sparse and sometimes so far apart that I can't I don't really feel like uh, if I'm speaking in a way, I don't really feel like I'm representing like the you know, the culture in general, because like, uh, yeah, we are playing like so uh, far away from each other. But like in the groups that I've experienced, um, normally we do, Um, mostly because so the way that I started playing, I was uh, I was taught by a player who basically basically was really into um, like uh, Vampire the Masquerade and all of those like larp drama at uh, 90s games. Um, so they would normally go really dark in their sessions. So they would actually, like, as a rule of thumb, always do a session zero and, like, do, like, what are you okay with? And, like, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, just check, uh, like, lines and veils and stuff like that. Before, we actually had the, the name for it, like, but it was basically the same thing. Um, so I sort of carried that with me uh, since I started playing. And in the groups that I've been a part of, normally we do. Um, and normally I play with uh, with people who are uh, really into character building and relationship building, and like we rarely start start a session without having everyone like know each other, like character-wise, uh, having bonds and stuff like that. Um, but I know that's not like I mean that's not, like, a representative... I mean, I, I don't think that's representative of, like, the gaming community at large. That's true. But, um, yeah. yeah. I'm not trying,
4: to, not trying to put you on the hook to speak for Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Just, <laughs> just, just <laughs> Mario's experience, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you
0: no, know, and and that's an interest that I... And, and I think, Brandes, you've you've pointed this out before, that there is... There are regionalisms in how people play the game, and it's always interesting to hear, like, what's commonplace for you in the game may not be... Commonplace in other places, depending on on well, those things. Like I,
4: I, come from this very tight knit gaming community that is bound together by LARPing, right? But right. by, by um, campaign length, buffer LARPing. So like, if I need players, I have a pool of like 150 people to go recruit from. But there are multiple um, non-overlapping LARPing communities in Georgia uh, that are about that size, mm-hmm. and so I don't even know how they do things.
0: Right.
4: And, and they live in Atlanta. <laughs> they <laughs> might live up the street from me, I just right. haven't met them. Right. 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 I,
3: so, I, I can oh. tell you, like, in, in the public places that i played, either in, in conventions or stores, I normally don't see people using Session Zero, because mostly it's more, it's something that just, like, something springs up, mm-hmm. um, and, like, people get together and play,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and, um. I think that's when you most should use Session Zero because no one knows each other, but that's
0: yeah, that's another matter. So, yeah, I've never that. seen it. And it depends on, I mean, you know, Session Zero can accomplish different things and, and, and establishing sort of the social norms of the game is one particularly really good reason to do a Session Zero, especially with a new group. Um, yep. You know, to my mind, Our, there's there's also an element of let's build this the characters and and you know decide what's the what are the themes what are the what's the story going to be about to help make the 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 campaign as good as possible like that's where mm-hmm. i where i want to get a lot out of my se- my session zero for my next campaign um because i'm playing with i'll be playing with the same group that i've been playing with for you know at that point probably two or three years i kind of know where the lines and veils are for them um yep. pretty well
2: you know i so for me, so there's two things I want to say. The first one is that this conversation that we're having just highlights the f- reasons why I'm glad that this section is in yes. the book. Um, sure. Secondly, like I'm playing uh, rhyme of the Frost Maiden with a group that I've I've played with every single person in the group before in various different. You know, mm-hmm. one of them has been a player in one of my games. I've been a player in in one of the other games. There are players I've been co-players with in other games and all that. And so I could say, well, I think I know their lines and veils. But when I set out to run Rhyme and the Frostmaiden, because it has some really, it has some very sort of dark themes to it, depending on how you run it, you can choose to have dark themes. So I gave them a... I I basically gave them the the safety form, you know, and had them fill it out, and and basically that it asks, you know, what absolutely is a line for you that you don't want to talk about, right? Like, and it lists. I can't remember. It's mm-hmm. it's the uh, it's on DriveThruRPG. through um,
0: Is that the one? Uh, was it Green Ronin that published that? That is that the one or Monty
2: Cook Games? Maybe it's 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 the Monty Cook Games yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so it was. I think it was Shauna Germain and um. Reynolds? Is it Sean Reynolds? Sean K. Reynolds? Yeah, Consent in Gaming is the name of it. Here's here's the thing, though. Here's my point with this. There's, there's two things. So you really need that for certain campaigns, even if you've already been playing with a group of people for a very long time. But secondly, in this particular book, it only spends like a page and a half on it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it doesn't really give real tools on how to accomplish this. So on one hand, a part of me is like, wow, I'm really, really happy they put this in here because they're talking about things that lots of gamers have known for a long time that that mm-hmm. this could be an issue. And you know, I, I could conjecture that the player base for D&D right now in 2020 is much broader and much more diverse than it has ever been in the history of the game. I may or may not be correct about that, I have no idea. But because of that, especially because of that, this is perfect to have this kind of conversation in the game, just like it's perfect to have the options of the, the sort of racial attributes and all that sort of thing that that adds to the richness of the game, and it only serves to bring more people in. But I got to say this section still kind of shallow for me, it still doesn't provide really concrete things to help a DM do this. It's mm-hmm. just sort of like, well, here's some things to think about, boom, you're done.
0: Yeah, and they, and they've been. I mean, they kind of handled it similarly in Rhyme with the Frostmaiden*, and it was nice to see an acknowledgement
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, of of the discussions that need to happen to make the campaign be successful for everybody. Um, but it's also like you're you're not wrong. Like that's great to acknowledge that, but at some point we need more than just acknowledgement. We need some tools uh, to help make that happen. Uh, and. This feels like the kind of book where you could have put those tools,
3: right? Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. a list of, you know, like you know, like a form, like you said, like the the one that that uh, I mean, I haven't seen the one that Mon, uh, I know about it, but I haven't actually mm-hmm. like uh, used it, the one from uh, Monty Cook. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, they could have like given some some examples. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it does. It does feel like just. Um, suggestions kind of
0: so not to transition us into a different topic but it sounds like we hit a lull there um, yep. and I feel like there are some other areas that are of high interest and I'm curious um, whether those are things that we're, that we are excited about or things that we're not so sure about uh, one of the things that comes up in this book uh, that they they talked about was going to be introduced in this book was psionics. So um, for the most part, I would argue that psionics are introduced in two new subclasses. Uh, there's the fighter subclass, which is called Psy Warrior. Um, and then there's the rogue subclass, the Soul Knife.
4: Um, uh, wait, you're leaving out the Aberrant Mind Sorcerer? Uh, am I? Yeah, that's the the, the caster psion is the aberrant mind.
3: Ah. Yeah. the The uh, interesting thing is that they removed psionic dyes from the sorcerer, so it feels kind of like just a normal sorcerer class. Well, sometimes. that's
0: that's yeah. That's because really the psionic mechanics in my mind was this sorcery die yeah. mechanic, and then that's not there for the aberrant mind. So I guess that's why it didn't stand out to me. So let's talk about psionics. How do we feel about the way they? They dealt I'm just with saying,
4: sound. They, have a, they, they have a feature called Sound Expels. So
0: no, yes, right. no, I see that. No, I, I understand. That's clearly what they were going for. You are not wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. I,
4: I, can, I can belabor the point just a little bit more if it would help.
0: <laughs> no, no. I, I'm on board with you. That That is clearly what they're going for. Although, they did not use the sorcery die mechanic that seemed to, at least in the yeah, other no, places... No. Epitomize what psionics is going to be in fifth
4: edition. Um, What I see there is that um, they have sort of decided that um, parallelism in all of these things is not obligatory. Right. Uh, Like, I I don't know, a a lot of people fight, but only battle masters have maneuvers. mm -hmm. Right.
3: How, how, how do you all feel about the removal of the randomness of the die? Like, they, they it used to be, like, it changed size. So they basically changed it in, in the sense that you have a number of them and then you spend them instead. Um, I asked because I had a player who, uh, who has been playtesting this class for a few months and uh, he really liked that mechanic. Which of the
0: classes? Uh,
3: the Soul Knife. The Soul Knife? Uh, the, the mechanic used to be used in the Soul Life and pretty much all of them um, in, in all, of, all of the classes. Um, and it was, uh, for anyone unfamiliar, it was that you basically rolled your, your die. And if you got the maximum number, the, the die went down in size category. So if it was a D8, it became a D6 and uh, so on uh, until it disappeared. And then if you got the lowest number, it would uh, increase until it got the, to the highest possible number for your class, for your level at that level. So, for this book, they did away with that and basically changed it in, in that you have a number of dice that you spend to fuel your features and there's no longer any randomness.
0: Well, and it seems it feels more consistent with what they've done in other classes, which I guess is, is I mean, that's. That can be good or bad, right? It's consistent, so it's a little bit easier to, to sort of grok, to understand, to, to follow along and, and use, um, because we're familiar with this concept already. Um, at the same time, it doesn't feel as unique, right? And maybe psionic yep. should feel unique. So Yeah, that was... That I mean. was
2: my... that was my I, I liked the die change. I thought it was an interesting mechanic. I thought that um, maybe the way it was presented was described in a way that made it seem more complicated than it actually was in play because I feel like in play there was only one player doing it and it wasn't all that complex like it just it just kind of once you sort of learned it it made sense and it felt really interesting um, whereas when you when you change it the way that they've changed it yeah okay it sort of feels more like the other characters and things kind of makes sense in the overall umbrella of fifth edition, but now it's just kind of, eh, okay.
0: It's not as adventurous as in design, in a design space. Right. Well, Cause
2: well, I, I'm one of those people that wanted psionics to be a little bit different, right? Like I know there was a whole conversation when the when the UA first came out about, you know, what do you do to make, you know, is psionics just magic of a different source, right? And so do you do we make it so that it matches the way that magic's, have worked in in the game in the past, and maybe just do one little tiny tweak to make it slightly different, or you know, rely on narrative power to make it slightly different, or do you actually make it mechanically different? And I'm of the I, I prefer the mechanical differences, right?
4: Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not privy to the you know feedback surveys by any stretch of the imagination, but I can read Twitter <laughs> and Facebook what? for sure. And uh, Twitter fell over into a trash fire every time they released a new Mystic or Scion UA. Yeah. Like, I, I can only conclude from this that uh, the psionic die, like, did okay for the Soul Knife and the... Um, uh, Psychic word, uh, sorry, word, whatever we're calling it these days. I'm sorry, I've lost track of what it's called in the final, but um, didn't survive for the aberrant mind. I don't know if that's true, but like, uh, Okka Razor suggests.
0: Yeah. It's strange that you're telling me that psionics are controversial in the D&D community, because I've never experienced (laughs) that in five editions of the game.
4: Oh, yeah, go on. Tell me another. (laughs) Yeah.
0: <laughs> Maybe that could be an well, addition war. Let's just go through Psionics through throughout
4: the editions. And, well, like uh, History of Psionics was one of my, my early series in Tribality, and no two editions have had even similar mechanics really. Like first to second was the smallest change, and it was still a revolutionary sea change where nothing was similar at all. Um, <laughs> like there there is no consistent mechanism for what psionics means and if you ask a group of ten players what they think Sonic should be, you will for sure get at least eleven answers.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Like no doubt about it. Right. Um,
2: Which, but see, here's what that says to me, and I and I understand why that it is not like this, but that says to me that all of them that there, there's room then to make some of them really different and some of them very similar. And then you might, you know, that that's kind of the shotgun approach, right? You're going to, you're going to hit the widest maybe range of people that are going to, you know, they're only going to like one of them though and the other ones aren't going to be to their taste. So you're going to have a problem, but that's going to be true no matter what they do with psionics because they've never been the same in any edition. So, I, to me, I'm just sort of like, you know, that was their one chance to kind of do something a little bit different and make it stand out. Who cares what Cyanix used to be in the other editions because it was never the same as the previous edition anyway. So, you know, keep with the pattern, people. Come on.
0: Well, and I, th- I think what we're... What just had it again from scratch every time. <laughs>
2: right.
0: I think what we're saying here uh, is that psionics. I would at least I would argue that that both the biggest strength and the biggest weakness in the way they're handling psionics in this book is that it doesn't diverge and it's not as controversial as previous versions of psionics. Right. Um, that is that is going to be its strength, baby, because it it, you might see more people embracing it. Uh, because it fits in better with what we know in the game, but it's also its weakness because it doesn't feel as weird and alien uh, and and different as as it has in the past. Does that does that sound fair?
3: Yeah, I, I think yeah. It, it's just I mean I I understand and and I can see that the mechanic is better in the se- well I mean easier to grasp and basically if if a new player sees it, it's easier for them to like just go ahead and use it mm-hmm. instead of having to learn something completely apart from the normal game uh but on the other hand like uh, like samuel said like it gave them a pretty unique identity that they i don't know if they have anymore mechanically at least i mean right. you can still flavor them but whatever you want so there's that
0: mm-hmm. and then i think the other um the other area where i think the that we haven't talked about yet that this book adds new ideas big big new ideas is in the in the way summoning works um because there's a whole whole new swath of summoning spells and they handle it very differently than uh, most of what i've seen in even in previous editions uh you know historically summoning spells are you know, you cast a spell, and you can summon this many of this CR creature, or this many of this CR creature, or this many of this CR creature, or, CR creature or whatever, right? Now, um, with, with the Natasha's version of the spells, you can summon, and they have a summon of just about every monster type, summon Celestial, summon Construct, summon, summon Elemental. That's the page I'm on. Uh, so, so you know what i mean. Uh and, oh. and, and it's just sort of a, a, a not a generic, but a a changeable stat block so you could be like hey summon elemental i'm gonna pick fire depending on what spell slot i use here's how the stats work and here are the you know because i picked fire here are the the fire based abilities that it has and that and then you're done you don't have to pick a specific monster manual uh creature to bring out
4: right and there's a couple of things going on there um one is um sort of that templatized thing uh, has a lot more in common with summons from 4 that you see in um, yeah. Complete Arcane. Um, and the other is they would probably really love to get away from needing to balance every new monster that they release uh, based on, oh, is it a Fae? All right, well, we need to check its CR really closely because people are going to summon that, right? Right. It, it, like. Every new monster book doesn't need to be a power-up for every summon spell. Well, a yeah, conjure no. spell. You know well, I
0: mean? And I've run into even um, even recently in my own game, my druid um, recently figured out that he can summon like eight pixies and each one of them can polymorph. I'm so sorry. Right? <laughs> yeah, everyone <can> cast confusion. <laughs> they're, they're, like C- well. they're like CR one-fourth, but they can each cast polymorph. Uh, <laughs> and, and that just destroys encounters you know so uh, this fixes that
4: i i strongly recommend uh a close reading of who chooses what gets summoned jeff
0: oh mm, well yes
4: (laughs) the answer is the the player chooses the cr the gm chooses the creature good call it's it's real rude it is a good way to lose friends.
0: <laughs> right. And that's not that's not the goal either. But this fixes all of that. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I don't that, hate the here's your template, pick your spell level, and here are the kind of powers they get sort of approach. It, I think it kind of works well. At least I hope it works well. I haven't played it at the table yet.
3: Yeah, and that, that kind of, uh, uh, I guess, affects or is extended to the uh, Ranger uh, Beastmaster companions because they also implement a yep. similar... Similar thing, yes, uh, for the Beastmasters.
4: Yeah. with exactly the same logic of not wanting each new creature book to have to be tested against the Beastmaster. Yeah, which obviously they still have to do. The player's handbook is still valid, but you get me, right? Right.
0: Yeah. So I feel like those are the big things. I think we've talked about all the big things in this book. Of course, there's there's lots of other things, and we could go through individual classes or individual magic items or uh, we could talk about each of the supernatural regions or what have you, right? Because uh, that's mixed up. What was it supernatural reasons, or uh, regions, magical phenomenon, natural hazards? Are kind of in the DM section, um, yeah. mm-hmm.
2: and I'm, and there's a part there's a parlaying with monsters. Yeah, little uh, you know set of tables with you know a paragraph of text to go with it, which I feel like they could have greatly expanded and made that. Some, you know, that's the sort of thing, you know, the, the parlaying with monsters and the uh, the environmental hazards, that sort of stuff really goes along with the other product that released today, which is the Wilderness mm-hmm. Kit or whatever they're calling it, right? Like, yep. they could have integrated that a great deal and said, you know, here's how you could use this during the game. You know, this isn't really meant to be sort of during combat, really, right? um and so you could use that and and the same with the environmental hazards well how do how to do, how does a pc know that there might be some of these hazards there based on where they're going i'll tell you what i'm going to use the heck out of these when my players end up plane hopping in my next D brief session right like right. this is right. this is exactly the type of thing to use right so these these are great i love these so don't skip don't sk-
0: did you also get that dm screen the wilderness kit i it?
2: did yeah yes i did and i imagine Brandis and
0: and mario did because i think you both got review sets from wizards yep. tracy yeah, yeah, yeah. tracy didn't because she always gets my second book they send me the stuff and then i send her the second the special edition cover so i still have the screen
2: i always purchase my own i never get a freebie and i'm totally okay with that um but I just, I just didn't want you to pass by that stuff as if it's mm-hmm. like, like to me, those are really awesome. That's really awesome DM tools, right? So, so
4: what I'm getting is you're you're only a three star general manager.
2: <laughs> I and, mean, and, and, and
4: Jeff and and Tracy are are the the actual Pentagon here.
0: I would argue that he's the one of the three of us with greater ethics because oh. he's, he's not being oh. swayed with freebies like we are.
1: <laughs> I get fewer freebies that than you. You, do. you
0: get much fewer freebies than I do. Yes, <laughs> um, that's that's absolutely. I am the least ethical of the bunch. I am. I will own that.
2: Uh, I don't. As, I'm not. i am i am I just to be clear, I'm not sure that it's uh, an ethics violation <laughs> to get something free, but whatever.
0: <laughs> no, and 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 I try to be upfront about it so people know what they're getting into. Although sure. we didn't do that yeah. this time around, but um, uh, the as, other
4: th- a, as a the, super quick note, yeah. uh, like this is our first new. Batch of uh, general access feats as opposed to like race feats oh, right. yeah, in yeah. Um, in Xanathar's. Um Like they've been so reluctant to release new feats that this is the first general access feats we've seen since the player's handbook, mm-hmm. which is kind of mind blowing if you've played third or fourth.
2: And I, in fact, I think it's. It highlights the difference, the different reliance uh, of the structure of the entire game on feats in third and fourth compared to fifth.
0: Yeah. I mean, for ultimately, sure. I feel like feats are a lot less big of a deal in this edition just because you have to sacrifice the ability score bump to, to take them. Um, yeah, for sure. And people know that even though feats are fun and interesting, um, that ability score bump is almost always going to be mechanically more advantageous. mm hmm
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean there's an argument to be made uh in many directions uh, with respect to that
4: so. absolutely but bonded accuracy is hell of a drug right
0: it is uh,
3: i i i i want to know just really quick what what are your uh, your thoughts on um like the the feats that give you kind of like a a taste of a class feature from a a particular class like a very um you know specific class feature like there's the one for the warlock that gives you uh uh what's it called an invocation yep um and there's uh one for the sorcerer that gives right. you metamagic
0: metamagic adept. Where you you're not a sorcerer yeah. but you can kind of play with a little bit of metamagic
3: yeah yeah so, I've, I, I've, I've been seeing some people and i mean it's not like in any way like uh, you know everyone but like i've been seeing some people making the argument that this kind of like devaluates like devaluates the values the identity of the sorcerer for example some people already start struggling as a class
4: the the sorcerers if the sorcerer's identity is two points of metamagic it has way worse problems than this feed and (laughs) and the answer is the sorcerer has way worse problems than this (laughs) feed
2: yeah i mean i you know what i i understand the argument and my my answer is from the player's perspective I, w- I love the fact that some of these let you kind of multiclass a teeny tiny bit without having to actually multiclass, in. because multiclassing isn't always the best choice, right? Like I, you know, because you you're never going to get to level twenty with with those either one of those, right? You're never going to get your level twenty feature. You might not get your level seventeen feature, right? So yep. you know, th- there's those things, right? Whereas the feat, okay, I can forego an ASI. And get to do a tiny, teeny toe dip into that class. And it, it gives me the one thing maybe that I want that might help me, right? Granted, this is a limited list, right? But it gives me the one thing that I would have dipped into that other class to get. And I don't have to dip into that other class. I can still stay my regular class. I like that. I mean, I understand the, the idea of it diminishing another class. But, you know, yeah, okay, niche protection, whatever. There's only five players at the table. Right. I mean, is everybody playing a sorcerer, and so you're trying to protect that niche? You know, I mean, it's just... That doesn't... its a, Just in practice, it's not... You know, okay, make your character stand out in another way then, right?
4: I, mean, but, I have a campaign with, like, uh, about 18 active players. They still don't need niche protection that badly. Mm-hmm. For real. Um, it's not... It's not like, people are just blowing it out of proportion. Like, I, th- I think everything
0: not. that's here... I like, and this is kind of my my general thoughts of the book in, gen, uh, in in large as well. Like all of the feats that are here, all the things that sort of dip into other classes just a little bit, I think are are fun. They, uh, you know, whether it, and, and that the new uh, options for class features, the new subclasses, the the customization of origins, all of these things help me build the character that I have in my head. Uh, and help me put it out there mechanically and do the thing that I want to do uh, in a way that's not going to be game breaking it's not going to ruin anybody else's fun I think all of that is is good um, my, my, but it also leads to to where I th- at least if I'm them these people that you're talking about where my concern comes in and my concern comes in that uh, I had a similar impression with Xanathar's like it's it's adding more options it's letting me build the character I want to build but if they do this too often, we're going to get that, that, you know, it, too many splat books, too many of everything books, right? We're going to end up with that, that creep in the game that uh, eventually destroys editions. Um, yeah, and,
4: but we're on, we're on schedule to have the next of these books in 2023. Right. I'm not super freaked about it. And, and, and I
0: said the same thing when Xanathars came out, that if this is the only time they do this, I'm fine. And now they've put out Tasha's and I'm like, okay, there's nothing there that I'm too worried about. It's fine, right? But I can also see the long-term writing on the wall and I want 5th edition to last for 20 years and and, 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 and whatever, right? And if, and if they do this even three, every three years, that obviously can't happen. Um, so, so yeah, once again, just like Xanathar's, I love everything that's here right now, at least first impressions. Um, and I hope that they are able to keep a reign on doing this, right? Like, I love what you've done, but like, let's not go crazy. Just because it's popular, just because it goes well, doesn't mean do this every other year, doesn't mean do this every year. You know, if I had my druthers, it would be every five years at most. Or just stop now. Like, we're good. I have all the options I need. (laughs) So that's where I'm at.
2: Part of what they're doing is when they put out a new adventure hardback, it it invariably has... Some new kind of way to think about the rules of the setting, or you know, how certain you know, with Avernus, it was devils and contracts and, and war machines, with uh, Frostmaiden, it's you know, winter effects and environmental things, and you know, stuff like that. And with you know, with the Ghosts of Salt March, it, it was ships and you know, how you run, so you know, every hardback, so I you know. I guess what I'm saying is, it's not only every three years where we get these little expansions, right? It's every time there's a new book. But the difference is that what's happening with the adventure books is it's meant to be a small, encapsulated way to expand the rules for this adventure.
0: Right, and I and I, that that I, that is an approach I, I really like.
2: Right. Whereas with Xanathar's and Tasha's, it's meant to be a rules module that sits on top of everything else, and therefore theoretically can apply to everything. But I'm not sure that that distinction is really all that different. To be perfectly honest, it's it's a it's a presentation difference, but ultimately in terms of rules, it's not really that different. I don't see the uh, the the things that are in this book as Trying to or or accomplishing an ex, uh, such a great expansion of rules that it's changing the way the game is, and they're going to have to go to a sixth edition. Like I just uh, I don't see. It. I you know I get what you're saying about oh I want it to last twenty years or whatnot, but you know I think they've already set in place a uh, a structure for a release schedule that makes it so that it can last for quite a while. I mean, uh, you look, it's already lasted longer than fourth edition. And it's on its way to being past three and 3.5. So, you know.
0: So I think um, let's let's take a, a moment to talk last thoughts, if that's okay. Because we're out we're at a good hour or so, but I think some folks still have a few things they want to say. Notes they've taken or things they want to bring up. And I know Tracy wants to talk about the story. And, and Tracy's by far talked the least. So I'm going to give her the floor first.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and I don't know if it's a last thoughts thing because I, I kind of want to... Uh, folks be able to talk about it. I know we did a little bit earlier when Brandis was talking about the context in which this book came out. There's um, a picture, uh, one of the illustrations on page 118. Uh, so I'm going to, I'll share it for our live listeners, but everyone else, you can just flip to page 118. I don't know if folks can see it. Uh, but this is a picture of an orc artist creates a tattoo on his elf friend. And we have a shirtless person <laughs> with uh, even uh, some nipple showing, and there is definitely some uh, nice jewelry put in there, and I'm just, it's like, epitomizes to me this uh, part of this book. And the other thing is, and this is a question, I may have missed it before, has there been a book where we have gotten a perspective from largely a female character in, or story icon in the same way?
4: The most we got along that all of those lines was a dice set from Laurel.
1: Yeah. Right. So,
4: that's the same, right, Tracy? Totally the same?
1: Totally the same. <laughs> um, I also want to point out on 89, there is this awesome elf, I think, elf? Yeah, wood elf, aristocrat. Mm-hmm. Rocking some beautiful uh, yeah. cloth.
2: Are you going to point out page 84?
1: I was like, so here's my problem. I was, and I never should have really gotten too far into this. What do you want to say about
2: it, Sam? Well, page 84, the caption on the image is wizardly boyfriends relax while their classmates practice magic mm. at an arcane enclave. Yeah. And I personally know uh, and love three gay men who just squeed with joy that there's this picture, and it's not ambiguous at all. It's not, oh, here's a picture, and, well, maybe you can look at it and see whatever you want. It actually says wizardly boyfriends. hmm yeah. And that is a huge step up in representation with respect to, um, you know, sexuality and sex expression and gender expression, far more than anything so distinctly put down as this is what is happening in this picture.
1: Yeah, yeah. and. And part of the reason I didn't have as much to say about all of the crunch is because the it was just hit after hit on the uh, in the art, and it was just so you could tell there was a lot of direction, um, a lot of attempt to, you know, you had a lot of very femme-looking uh, folks in the beginning, but throughout it, there are also women that look more masculine. So I was just like, this is this is cool, and I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And then um, one of the traps really stood out to me. It was the doll one. Uh, cause now we have this thing where you're trying to, uh, spoiler, mm-hmm. re, uh, re, uh, help a girl get, uh, move on, but she doesn't want to move on until she can get her doll again. And there's a whole puzzle about helping her get her doll. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just, it was great to me reading that part of the book. So sorry, I don't have as much crunch yeah. stuff, but that's cause I spent time on that.
2: And, and talking about the art, too, and, and not related to anything about uh, diversity, but there's on page 116, there's this great picture of a a farmer halfling sorcerer who <laughs> is casting magic missiles. And um, the, the section is about personalizing yeah. your spells. And the magic missiles look like chickens. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, this is something that spoke directly to me because I, I have my players do this all the time, right? Like when they cast a spell, I say, well, what does that look like? like when you do that right. because that's one of the ways you can have four wizards in a group or four spellcasters in a group and if they want to seem different at all it's going to have to be in the way that those those effects of the spells manifest. So uh, this is a great illustration of that. The picture's funny and everything too. So yeah. I think they did a good job here. Um, Jared Rasher in the uh, in the chat pointed out to me that um, in the Mythic Odysseys of Theros, they also mention uh, married kings and whatnot. Um, so yeah.
4: If you if you skip on um, homosexual men in your Greek myth, you have fundamentally just not <laughs> done Greek myth. Right. Sure. You're yes. Failed.
2: <laughs> yes. But my thing too is that there there are many D and D players who do not buy the Magic the Gathering versions of the setting books, mm-hmm. so they might not have had the experience of that, and they also might uh, you know not know anything about Greek mythology.
0: <laughs> and in terms of other story things, mm-hmm. uh, also not having, book. <laughs> also not having a conversation about necessarily uh, diversity and representation, but but um, I found like I was not. Expecting to find much enjoyment in the little snippets from Tasha, um, because she like, is straight up funny. Well, right. She's because really the Canaan ones were kind of blah. The Xanathar ones were kind of you know okay, whatever you know. Uh, but Tasha, yeah, she is straight up like snarky and funny, and I enjoyed the heck out of her. At least the first time through. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'll reference them other than occasionally to. to make a joke here and there um but i don't think i'll reference them as i as i use them but i did enjoy like that was the once i realized how funny they yeah. were that was the first thing i did as i went through and i read the rest of them the ones in artificer
4: uh literally made me laugh out loud as i read them like <laughs> that doesn't happen often they were phenomenal yeah um i also like that she's name checking um uh, greyhawk cannon yeah uh-huh.
2: uh, my she, my she, favorite she, one she is the more one yeah there's there's an image in here where she's playing uh, wizard chess with Morden Kanan, and then later on, one of the quotes is about Project Humble Kanan because she's trying to you know <laughs> right. make him more humble because you know <laughs> he's an, uh he he's very um, full of himself. Let's say yes. <laughs> what
0: was there was one? Where, which one was it? Is it wizard? That were they that they had the bl- uh, Blade singer? Yeah. What was the little snippet? Oh, the sword bards. That's what she called them, sword bards, <laughs> which, which is my favorite description of Bladesinger ever. So that's what they are now, sword bards.
2: <laughs> well, and look, the Circle of Wildfire, her quote is, I can't tell you how many times I've burned everything to the ground and started over. Right? Like and that describes about four-fifths of the D&D groups I've ever been in. Right. <laughs> So yes,
0: I enjoy – and and there's a, a full-page splash art with her that sort of tells her story a little bit. Uh, the, the magic spells and the items that are there at first blush are, are just an, a, a strange, eclectic collection of things. But if you dig deeper into the lore of Tasha, like they actually do kind of make sense um, for her. So um, it all kind of – like I felt like the theme of Tasha – was stronger here than the yep. theme of Morden Kanan or the theme of of um, Xanathar was in in those books.
3: Yeah, I mean, Xanathar was funny, but like it, it wasn't. I would say it wasn't as relatable <laughs> as right. Tasha is, because it's like you can see like you're kind of like rooting for Tasha, and Xanathar you, you just go like, I mean, sure. <laughs>
4: Like, even though even though Tasha is the worst, yeah. oh yeah, so
0: awful. But Xanathar, she's like, about it, after so two whatever. or three after two or three blurbs from Xanathar, it's like, okay, I get it, that's the joke. Yeah, I'm, go- I'm yeah, good yeah. now, right? But Tasha is consistently like funny all the way through. <laughs> so, anyway. That was another. That was another last thought I thought was worth mentioning. Any other folks with last thoughts, things you want to mention? Uh, because we are over an hour now, so I don't want to uh, keep anybody too long if they if they're not up for it.
4: Was I don't necessarily want to go into any depth on it, but there's some cool stuff going on in Magic items. I am into oh, yeah. the Magic items. Uh, they could have sold me just the Cauldron of, Re- of Rebirth, and I'd be set.
0: Hmm.
4: Because if you're going to start referencing, um, like. That, that level of Welsh myth, like, yes, sign me there up, I'm here all day. <laughs> um, but, uh, like, the, the Chronicles of Pride Ain were the fantasy I cut my teeth on. Hmm. More than more than even The Good Professor or Susan Cooper or uh, Ursula Le Guin or, or anyone else. Like, Chronicles of Pride Ain were my thing and, well, here we are. It's great. Uh, speaking
0: of teeth, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Very> yes.
4: <good.
3: laughs> yes. There's a very cool my, I I mean the the Teeth of Dalvernar I think in my opinion has the potential to become the new I mean the this edition's version of like the um, thing I just somehow can't remember the, the, deck, the... Of oh, yeah, okay. the deck of many oh, things. deck of many things. It's so original and it's so thematic and it has so many options. So what well, what can I tell you say about
0: those?
4: The yep. funny thing about them is that uh, Sam and I spotted those in the first Ed DMG last week, or two weeks ago, whatever. Really? Yeah. Wow. They, get, they go all the way back. I had no idea. It is, it is a deep, deep yeah. cut.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we had a pretty expen- extensive conversation about them because it was so, like, wow, why didn't this show up in any other edition? And then, <laughs> ta-da! <laughs>
4: so, so, so they were in... What oh what was
0: there in the tome of magic? That Jared is pointing out in the three point five yeah. tome of magic.
4: That, thank you. Okay. Yeah. 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 They were in one of the three point five books I didn't own. That's, that's what I knew. <laughs> yeah. There
2: you go. There's also I want to point out the um the picture of the the picture near the um, mimic swarm or the the mimic young mimics whatever the. Now, I don't know what page number it is. Oh, it's uh, page one sixty-seven. But it's 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 flippin' hilarious. It's two ladies, and you know they're just sitting right. there having tea, chatting up. You know, it's just a normal day. Literally, everything around them is a mimic and has teeth showing. And you're right. te- the te- when you said teeth, it reminded me of it. And it's just, I, I just see these. These are the caretakers of the mimic colony. You know, the mimics aren't going to hurt them, and they're just, you know, and it's just like the most hilarious thing in the world. I love it. The house is a mimic. The somebody, posted, a mimic.
0: somebody posted somebody posted this image on face on one of the Facebook groups I'm in uh, to like two weeks ago, and I'm like, that is a really cute, clever image. It's like it. It's like the uh, the old cat lady, except instead of cats, it's mimics. And everybody on the yeah. group was having a good time with it and whatever. Uh, and I mentioned it to my group and like that's really cool. Can you find it? And I couldn't find it, and, and I didn't know where it was from and whatever. And then I get the book. And I'm like, oh, here it is. And I took a picture and sent it to my group because they were really into like, oh my gosh, that sounds awesome. Like the flower pots are mimic. Like you said, everything. The teacup yeah. cup is a mimic, right? Uh, everything is a mimic. <laughs> yep. And they're that's just weird. sitting there enjoying hanging out with their mimics. Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> oh. I do like that there's another deck of another artifact deck of cards. Uh, since Mario is mentioning the deck of many things, mm, okay. um, Liuba's uh, Toruk of Souls is cool. Like now you can hand out a deck of magic cards, and your players don't automatically know which kind of screwed
0: they are. Which also <laughs> retcons some Ravenloft lore as well. Because, For sure, because For sure. original Curse of Strahd and and many editions previous Ravenloft was or the the Valley of Barovia was predominantly full of um, humans and the Vistani were all human but Luba the creator of this Vistani deck is a halfling as I recall uh, and and it sort of has was, there was there's a little sidebar along with it that sort of explains that there's you know Strahd was a conqueror. He brought people in from all these other places he conquered. It is a diverse place, and that includes elves and dwarves and all these other races as well. And so it is sort of retconning Barovia to be a little less Eastern European, which I think is fine, uh, and be a little bit more D&D um, in the process of doing so.
3: I'm just so happy to see anything uh, Ravenloft in a known, you know,
0: Ravenloft book.
3: Mm-hmm. Um it feels it feels good and it feels like it like like you said like it belongs in the larger multiverse instead of being like its own separate thing.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I I think that um like now that we're seeing like the clockwork soul sorcerer uh referencing uh Mechanus like we're well, and there's been a lot of um, spelljammer references, the spelljamming helms and such, uh, mm-hmm. in multiple adventures now. Mm-hmm. Um, like th- We're definitely getting back into a very 2E-style, like, wider multiversal setting. And
0: But, but without publishing a brand-new giant box set setting every other month. <laughs>
4: so. uh, no, no, but, like, two a year, which is still a surprisingly high number, Right. For, for settings.
0: But the, but, but even uh, then, it doesn't feel like... Like, we're getting it's,
4: it, settings. It's not a complaint. No, no, no. It's a complaint at all. We're getting settings, uh, because, but we're not
0: getting full, like, here's a campaign to run in a setting, sort of, like they did in second right. edition.
4: Well, they're stopping at one book. Right. Uh, that's that's really the
0: shocker. So far.
4: Considering all the conversation around how uh, having multiple setting lines splinted their audience, mm-hmm. um, I... Uh, I'd at least put some money on them sticking to this pretty hard. Um, might well, get relaxed yes. somewhere, sure. What do I know? I, I, but-
0: I wouldn't be surprised if we saw, um, you know, a, an occasional fall. Fo- like I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a Ravenloft follow-up, not just a reprint or a remake of Curse of Strahd, but like here's a new. Uh, as Jared points out, Azylin, who's a Ravenloft character, also shows up in this book. Nice. Uh, yep. so, nice. so I could see an occasional setting five years later getting a follow-up book or something like that every now and then, but I don't think they're going to do like the second edition days. I think they learned their lesson from that to not splinter everybody into their own little corner setting yep. or destroy my wallet by forcing me to buy all of them.
4: Uh, they're fine destroying your wallet. Jeff.
0: <laughs> oh, that's true. They are. <laughs> and in fairness, they still send me review copies of most things. So <laughs> it wouldn't be that wallet destroying for me. But, all right. Any other last thoughts Can, or should we wrap it up?
3: Oh, one thing I I wanted to say I don't know if if it's something I missed or um it's just an observation about the 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 base class features that most of they're calling they're calling them optional class features which aren't the uh, the ones that modify the the base class feature uh-huh. and they you know before each section of them it says that you basically have to consult your DM. Um, to decide whether you gain a feature in this section or not. Um, you don't gain these features automatically. I wish, and I don't know if there's if it's in there and I just missed, but I wish they would give sort of a guideline on how to implement them instead of just like, here's this, oh. use them if you want or not. G-
0: give some guidance to DMs on how to make that decision?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, to me, it feels like many of them feel like they just add stuff. It's not like okay, replace this feature with this feature. It's just like, here's extra stuff. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I can come up with ways, I mean, for people to get them, but I wish the books were more explicit.
0: Yeah, although I I had my players ask me today if they could use stuff from this, and I just told them a pretty blanket, like, in terms of feats, class features, spells, like, yeah, go ahead and just, Turn that on on D and Beyond. Start using them. I, I have no problem with that, right? Um, yeah, you know, because I, and I and I didn't say that about like the magic books and that kind of stuff, the the you know Ravnica and that kind of stuff because that's the things in there we're trying are trying to evoke a particular setting, and I don't want to yeah. just give a blanket approval to something that's from a setting. Um, right. But this is intended to be generalized. And most of, now, if you want to have a conversation about making a a, a, a customize the lineage or whatever then then that's a conversation with the DM but if it's just spells and feats and class features I'm sort of open let people, my players anyway, to play with it nothing fe- felt yeah. game breaking to me So
4: yeah, I do have a fairly strong impulse to like start up a campaign with okay, we're all using uh, uh, custom origins uh, tell me what your person is when you're done go nuts and whatever you decide, that's what's in the setting.
0: Oh, okay. So if if only one if everybody sort of builds their customized version of human, then it's a setting of just humans.
4: I, I guarantee my players would not do that. Right. So but, yes, but that's I can do that comfortably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Very I, good. I've met
0: those people and no. Right. <laughs> okay. Other uh, sort of last thoughts on uh Tasha's Cauldron of Everything.
2: Well I just um, I kind of feel the same way about the optional class features. It does try to say, you know, you can take one of these. You, if you take one of them, you don't have to take all the ones in this section, mm-hmm. right? It's not a new subclass in this very first part. But I feel like overall, and fifth edition is getting old enough now where I see this, or I feel this way in a lot, in a lot of the books that they release, adventures and and other supplements. They kind of just assume that the DM knows what they're doing. Mm. And, and while, and that and sounds kind of flippant, I, I'm not saying the DMs don't know what they're doing, but sometimes when they present a new idea or they present something new for the game or, or whatever, they kind of just assume, oh, the DMs will figure it out. Like they, they now have enough experience. They can, they can work this through. And it, it's so group dependent, and it's so this, and it's so that. You know, we, we're not going to give them any hard and fast suggestions and 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 guidelines on how to do this. We're just going to assume they can do it based on exactly what it says in the book. And I kind of feel like fifth edition is a little light on DM advice mm-hmm. in that way. Um, but on the other hand, since I know that no one ever reads the DMG. Even if they wrote right. that <laughs> advice, I'm not sure anybody would read it anyway. Well, that's so, what I was going to say.
0: <laughs> Do you know that they don't give that advice, or that it, maybe it's in the DMG and we just don't read it?
2: Well, no, but the, <laughs> DMG, though, but the DMG doesn't cover what's in Tosh's. So what right. I'm saying is when they come out with new stuff, they tend to just assume or, that, the, that the DM or, is or just going to understand d- how to implement it.
0: Maybe the DMG does have a section on what a DM should consider when adding optional things to their game. I don't know, because... We don't read the DMG, and if we do, we immediately I, blank. Well,
4: I
2: have well, read the DMG, but <laughs> I'm just telling you that when a new book comes out, it could use a little more guidance. That's all.
0: I, I
4: well, absolutely, and I, I will say that as the other person who's read the DMG out of the whole player base, <laughs> uh, I, I think that um, we're, like the the DMG, uh, Xanathars and Tasha's uh, do have some things to say about options and best practices, um, though I'd like to see more best practices over discussion overall. Uh, it's just that the way that gets really brought into the culture of gaming is through published adventures and not through something that reads like a textbook because we aren't good at textbooks.
0: And for the record, I know, I know at least four people have read the DMG. The two of you, Dan Dillon and... And, and Jeremy Neil. Crawford. I was going to say Neil Powell <laughs> uh, because he, he was tweeting like a page-by-page account of the DMG. Um, but yeah, Jeremy Crawford probably read it too, I, I imagine.
2: So I, 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 agree with, I agree with Brandis that um, I think that that gets um, telegraphed in adventures more than anything. But then mm-hmm. that just proves my point because they don't do it in adventures either. And especially they don't do it in adventures because they're so packed full of information. Very little of it says, "Hey, here are some best practices on how to make this work."
0: It sounds like you should be writing more articles on RPG musings about how to do these things for DMs. Uh,
4: I have so been
2: doing it for Frost Maiden. Uh, right. There's about six articles on there. So, yep, you know,
0: doing the Lord's work, Sam. Yeah, <laughs> there
2: you go
0: all right unless there's anything else i'm gonna go ahead and call this the end of the episode i would take questions from the the stream uh but man we have gone an hour and a half so i think it's time to wrap it up or else uh i might get in trouble for coming to bed so late uh so um is that okay with everybody if we wrap it up all right then that's the end of the episode
1: We'd like to say thank you to all our listeners who support us by shopping at Amazon or DMs Guild through the links at thetomeshow.com or who have become patrons at patreon.com slash thetomeshow, such as Hyperlexic, Merrick Blackman, Jill Sanders, Leonard Pelletier, Doug Palmer. we also like to thank our guests. Mario, where can folks find you on the interwebs?
3: Uh, they can find me on Twitter, uh, Twitch, and uh, YouTube as Iwerious, um in and- Uh, I think I have a Facebook as well, but don't go there because I don't use it anymore. But yeah, just look for Elwarius everywhere.
0: And that's that's E L W A R I U S.
2: Correct. Find me on Twitter at dm samuel or on RPG musings or all over the Tome Show because I apparently am the general manager.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're fired. And Brandis?
4: I write for Tribality.com. I'm on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. My Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. And my personal blog is BrandisStoddard.com.
0: All right. And if you want to get a hold of the the show in general, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. Tracy is at Sarah Magic. That's Sarah with an H. Uh, you can tweet the show at the Tome Show. We have a Facebook page that is up to date uh, and and active. Um, I'm checking on it, and Ismail Alvarez, our social media manager, checks up on it. Uh, and we also have a Discord. Um, and if you ask us on any of those places, we will send you the link to get onto our Discord and go chat with us there. Um, and Sam will welcome you because he is the official greeter amongst uh, his other duties to uh, the Tome Show Discord.
2: You're going to make him the
4: general manager and the major d? Uh, I
0: I was thinking like Walmart greeter. Yeah. No,
4: he's... She with...
2: No, see, with each new task that I have, or with each new title I have, none of my other jobs change. It just adds on.
0: Yeah. Well, in fairness, I just search for titles to describe what you're already doing anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. And that's our surprise round episode where uh, about where we discovered a few of the secret names of the mysterious mage Tasha. Unfortunately, none of them were Clarissa. In this episode of... I'm on the wall.